Okay. Uh, my goal there is not to compel anybody. I want to simply lay out a vision and see what you do with it. Okay. Uh, if you do give towards that, mark it in some way. Because some of you have just started tithing. Others have started tithing your, your a normal tithe, what a tithe actually is. And um, our church computer got stolen. So we're having real serious difficulty with all of our accounting at the moment. It will all get straight. All of your uh, contributions will be recorded properly, all of those things. But what I'm saying is if you don't earmark it in some way right now, it's not very easy for me to tell what is an offering and what is tithing. And uh, our tithing is what keeps everything operating. The offering is what we would have to build something new with. We're clear there? Yes. Okay, good. So now we can preach. Darren, it's rolling there? Oh, good. Yeah, and we got the money on the internet. How about that? Good news for them is there's no way to give on our website. Wasn't that cool? Yes. I did uh, get a phone call this week, though. Somebody that does not want to attend our church. That's very clear. But they believe that God's moving here, that He has anointed me, and wants me to meet with them once a week to help them. But they don't want to attend our church. <laughs> Sweet people, I understand it. I was probably that friend to somebody that, that liked my personality and would have dated me. I just wasn't good looking enough, right? <laughs> our, our, our church seems to be that way. If you want what we have here, and you believe it's anointed, and you believe it's godly, but you will not come here to get it, you need to ask yourself why. Are you Nicodemus sneaking off to Jesus at night? How about that? That's not our message, though. We better get into our message. I'm going to get further in the hole. Uh, let's pray. Mighty God, we thank You for this opportunity. It is the high honor of my life, Mighty One, to get to speak Your Word. With all of my heart, Lord, I long for You. I don't know what a deer panting is like, except Your Word says it. But Lord, my soul is panting for You. Jesus, I love You and I want your presence in my life and in this church. We will move in any way. We will do anything or stop doing anything that you tell us to do because we are hungry for you. The God of the universe. The King of our hearts and the Lord of our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, turn with me to 2 Kings. Those of you that know my Bible got stole, stolen here not long ago, I want you to know it's turned out to be a good thing. I can find nothing in my new Bible. And I also can't sleep. I've renewed an old practice that Jennifer and I settled some years ago. I bought a book light. And I wait for her to fall asleep. And every night for about three hours after she falls asleep, I am reading my new Bible because honestly, it feels like the very first time. I don't know where anything is in it. And uh, the feeling that I hate is also turning out to be a good, good thing. In all things, our God works for the good of those that love Him. So I began reading a familiar story in 2 Kings 3. And if I had had my Bible, immediately my eyes would glance towards historical notes, towards uh, interlacing cross-references from years and years and years of study. But when I opened it, it's blank. And I said, Lord, uh, I feel so naked here. I don't know what... Lord. And when the coolest thing happened, 
He's been showing me things that I did not know. Isn't that beautiful? It is a good thing to be vulnerable before our God because He will show you things. He will teach you things you wouldn't have known, but as long as you have something to lean on, you have something besides God. And who would think a Bible could be an idol? Well, if you cry for three or four days when it's gone, it might have been too important. In 2 Kings 3, we want to start there. The year is around 850 B.C. And uh, this is a time of civil war in Israel's history. We have had kings in the north called kings of Israel and kings in the south called kings of Judah. And what was once God's nation has now had a good old-fashioned church split. Although God said that the kingdom should always belong to the house of David, now we have the house of Joseph reigning in the north. And uh, this story picks up with Joram. Joram is the king of Israel, the king of the northern ten tribes. Joram, the son of Ahab, became king in Israel, in Samaria, king of Israel, in Samaria, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. If you ever get confused when you're reading the book of Kings, it's because one king refers his reign to another king. This is because the two kingdoms both make up what we would know as Israel, the whole land of Israel. So it would be a little bit like during the Civil War. We might say during the second year of Abraham Lincoln, Stephen F. Austin did this, right? That's how they're referring to these as interlacing things. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's not cool. But not as his father and mother had done. What a strange thing to say. He did evil, but not as his father and mother had done. Who was his father and mother? It was Ahab and Jezebel. Nobody likes to be called Jezebel, huh? You know, this is a little bit like two notorious drug dealers. One of them dies. So the surviving drug dealer goes to the pastors in town, can't find anybody who will bury his brother. Finally, he goes to one pastor and he says, look, I will give you a million dollars if you would just make my brother look good at his funeral. Mm. We both know he was wicked. <laughs> we both know he was a scumbag. But it's his funeral. My mom's going to be there. Say nice things about him. Make him look good. Pastor said, a million dollars? Yeah, a million dollars. You have it with you? Yeah, in a briefcase. Takes a million dollars, the funeral. He stands up and he preaches. He says, the man here in this casket was a despicable, deplorable human being. He stole. He extorted. He sold drugs to your children. But when compared to his brother on the second row, he was a saint. The only thing that would make Joram look good is when you compare him with his mommy and daddy. They were so wicked that Elijah had to have all of Israel choose which God they were going to serve because of this man's reign. Joram's daddy Ahab and the wife Jezebel set up 450 prophets to Astra. They did all kind of crazy things. They conspired to steal from God's anointed. So his upbringing was not good. He got rid of all the sacred stones of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. In Hebrew, the word no is lo. L-O. Lo. 
What is the word for to turn? Tashuba. Lo, Tashuba. <laughs> the guy did not turn around. Well, what were the son the sins of the son of Jerob of Jeroboam, son of Nebat? Turn with me if you would. We're going to go to 1 Kings 12. I just want you to get an idea what Joram's involved in. And you can do this because he comes from an illustrious line of scumbags. 1 Kings 12, 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. By the way, 2 Samuel 7, 5-16 says, the kingdom should always be with David. Forever and ever and ever. So what is the man really worried about? He's worried God's word will be true. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Where have we seen that story before? He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So the first thing is, he hates spiritual authority. He doesn't want it recognized because if people see what is truly spiritual, they, they won't follow him. The second thing is, he institutes idolatry because serving God is just it's too hard, you know? I mean, you can't really do that stuff in the business world and succeed. One he set up at Bethel, the other at Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on the high places. You can turn back. His basic sins are that he resisted spiritual authority. He reverted, perverted worship with idols and he made things easier. So when you're thinking of Joram, you need to know that Joram takes the easy route. Joram is willing to pervert the right ways of God to hold on to his authority. Because truly he hates real spiritual authority. As I began to think about Joram, it's so funny. I did not think of people others would think of as wicked. <laughs> I thought of people that held offices. People that held positions. In places with godly names. But you know what? They hated true spiritual authority because it threatened them. They were willing to make the service of God easier for everyone, even if it meant perverting the right way to worship. And I realized there's an awful lot of Jorums in the world. As I thought about that, I thought, hmm, there may even be some Jorum in me. Jorum corresponds in what we're going to teach tonight to your mind, will, and emotions. In your spirit, you know what is right. But in the realm that we call soul, you're often torn between what you know is right and what is expedient for you. Have you never been in a situation? I think we heard a testimony earlier about being in a situation when your flesh is crying, something needs to happen. Your spirit's going, uh-uh. And your soul's in the tug of war between the two. Torn in the middle. Joram is like the one that is torn between the king that he should be and the pig that he is. Right? Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Jehoshaphat is a different kind of man. Jehoshaphat 
is the son of King Asa. King Asa, in 2 Chronicles 15, caused all of Israel to repent. All of Israel to make a covenant with God to seek Him with their whole heart. King Asa was just a little boy when he began to reign. But the first thing that he did was go destroy all of the high places. He went to go take down everything that would detract from God. He was God's man of power for the hour because he sought God with his whole heart. This is Jehoshaphat's line. So we have two kings that are meeting. One comes from a line of compromisers who does what is expedient. The other comes from a noble, godly, princely line who does what is right even if it's hard. Tonight, for our purposes, as much as Joram might represent your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, Jehoshaphat is much like your spirit. It's descended from something that is God. It's commingled with God's presence so that you participate in the divine nature. Joram, son of Abraham, I'm sorry, son of Ahab, became king of Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, king of praise. Uh, and he reigned twelve years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had, he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel so that the king Joram sent out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? There's lots of king's names, lots of nations. It'd be so easy to get lost. Let me help you. Joram is used to ruling his daddy's kingdom. But not everybody in his daddy's kingdom likes him as ruler. So Moab says, mm, now, I might not could have took your daddy, but I can take you. I'm going to rebel. What Joram does is say, hey, Jehoshaphat, would you come help me? And Jehoshaphat has a decision to make. Will the spirit join with the soul in this battle? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. See, when we look at the three parts of humanity, one of the things that happens is you have a spirit, the part of you that God has redeemed and that knows what is right. You have a mind, will, and emotion called a soul. That's the part of you that honestly, it can be swayed pretty easily. And you also have a third part of you. It's your flesh. And when all three of these things line up, you are a powerful individual. You are powerful for doing evil or you're powerful for doing good. When they don't line up, you're usually powerfully inactive. You understand what I mean? You ever done something and said, my heart's just not in it? What did you mean? You mean the three parts of you are not in agreement. You ever been in a place where your body told you to do something your mind didn't want to do? You ever had diarrhea? Yeah. Yeah. Just don't receive it. Right. It's too late. It's lame. 
In fact, who would you say is the smallest, quietest voice in the bunch of all three inside of you? Probably your spirit. But who's supposed to be the most powerful? The spirit is. In fact, your spirit is the part that is redeemed first. Your mind, will, and emotions are being sanctified and your body is yet to be redeemed. We are supposed to, it is our goal to, bring our mind, will, and emotions into the same knowledge as our spirit and our flesh their slave. This was the prophecy given over Ham, Shem, and Japheth. All three parts of mankind. Shem represents the name of God, the Spirit of God. He was supposed to bring Japheth, the mind, will, and emotions, into his tent. And together they were supposed to enslave Cain, the flesh, Ham. Right here we have three kings, but you haven't met the third. I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. What a crazy thing. The king of Edom goes through this entire passage, indeed through this whole book, and you never even know his name. Because let's be honest. While there may be something incredibly unique about your spirit, and there may be something that is unique about the way you think, your mind, your will, your emotional makeup, there's not a lot that's truly unique about your flesh. You ask anybody in the medical field, you get to a point where you're like, it's just a body, dude. I mean, it's just a giant piece of meat, right? When, when, maybe not giant in everybody's case. When you're a young person, all you can do is notice all the different ways that peoples are made. By the time you get older, you really don't even notice that anymore. It is all starting to look the same. It's done. You follow me? Yes. Edom does not even have a name. You know what else is interesting? Well, well the king of Israel, Joram, the, the uh, soulish part of this equation, had never conquered him. The spirit had conquered him. Jehoshaphat had brought Edom into subjugation to him. He's not there on this battle because he wants to be there. The king of Edom is there because if he doesn't go, Jehoshaphat will whip him. He's what's called a vassal. In fact, although the scripture calls him a king, he functions more like an appointed governor. He has to say, Jehoshaphat, what should I do? Jehoshaphat, well, oh, am I allowed? Not allowed? He doesn't act much like a monarch. So these three kings go off to war. Your body, your soul, and your spirit. So why on earth would God send these kings off to war? One is wicked, one is a slave, and one is righteous. I don't know, why would He send those three kings off to war? Think about that, saints. Is this not the position we're in all of the time? Do you know that the Bible says that your heart is exceedingly deceitful and wicked? <laughs> it does, it says that. But God introduces something into it that is supposed to permeate it to change it. Did you know that the Bible says the mind of carnal, fleshly, normal man is death? But God says He has renewed your mind so that you can know His thoughts. We have these same three battles going on in us all of the time. You have both the lineage of the compromising, expedient, whatever's easiest. Whoa! I'm on top, I'm the king, but truthfully I'm a slave to everything around me. You have the Edom. What can I do, sir? You know, I'm going to please you. Hungry? Eat. You know, Thirsty? Drink. Something else? Tired? Sleep. 
the slave to the flesh. And then we have that one that is of noble descent. The one that tears down high places. The one that causes us to seek God. The one that knows what is right. These three kings go to war. Let's read about their very first test. It's really revealing. Verse 9. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah, king of praise, and the king of Edom. Afterwards, I'm sorry, after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. The very first thing when they go off to war, they had been gone one week and they don't have enough water. Well, when you hit a tribe, what happens in your life? In your spirit, you go, you know, I know this is going to be okay. God's not going to let me down. In your flesh, you go, but I'm thirsty! Don't you understand? I haven't had water! You get sharp with each other. You start to feel the squeeze. The flesh is the first place you, you feel it. Then your spirit, I'm sorry, your soul is torn between those two. Well, I know God's going to do it, but what if He doesn't? I know it's going to be okay, but what if it's not? What if I'm the one person on all of the history that God fails? And the flesh and the soul start to try to commingle to overcome the spirit. This is the battle going on in humanity all of the time, but guess what? It's not the battle that you're supposed to be in. Why did they all get together? To go fight the king of Moab. The reason that they have all joined is to go fight the king of Moab. But as soon as they have faced trouble, they're at an impasse. Listen to what happens. What, exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? They haven't even faced Moab. They have not even faced Moab and the soulish realm is going, we're going to die. Edom's like, what am I supposed to believe? Who's strongest at the moment? Because I'd like some water. <laughs> what did the Spirit say? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? One of the three says, When we faced a problem, let's seek God. The other two just want to die. Has Israel never faced problems with water shortages before? Let's turn to Exodus 15. Exodus 15 verse 22 I keep looking at the wrong place on my page for scriptures then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out to the desert of sure <laughs> for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water when they came to Marah they could not drink its water because it was bitter that is why the place is called Marah so the people grumbled against Moses saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. I don't have time to teach on this tonight because I'm already over. This word for showed is instructed. God instructed Moses about a piece of wood. See, there would be a cross some thousands of years later that when put in the sea of humanity would take everything that was bitter and make it sweet. And Moses saw a picture of that. But for this purpose, it's just wood. It doesn't matter. God can use a foolish thing to confound the wisdom of the wise. We're going to find out that there's nothing too difficult for the Lord to do. The problem is not that the water is bitter. 
The problem is that the people are bitter. God can raise up descendants from stones if he needs to. God can raise up 5,000 people's worth of fish from five and two loaves. God can raise what we need next door or in your life or anywhere else without any problem. The problem is not our lack of resource. It's our lack of trust. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them. And there He tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all of His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Heals and saves. Same idea. Same idea. The 27th verse is particularly important. Then. Usually when we say the word then, it means that something else occurred and now this is occurring, right? I went to the store. Then I got out of the car, right? What, what happens before the then statement? We have a problem and we grumbled. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. See, I want to tell you that when the three kings go off to war, one can't remember this story because he's the flesh and he's just, frankly, kind of an idiot. One could remember it, but he's choosing to dwell in the flesh. We're just going to die. The flesh has a need and, and we're going to die. But the one who is commingled with the Spirit of God, the one who is a son of God says, I remember this. The Lord has brought me before and my people before to places with no water. And do you know what was on the other side of that test? Elim. On the other side of the test were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. If I can just trust Him a little bit longer, if I can just come through a little longer, this bitter water will surely become sweet. He will bring me to an oasis. Our spirit knows that this is true. Our flesh and our soul do everything they can to convince us the Spirit's a liar. I want to tell you today, there's truth planted in you that can, can, C-A-N, can, save you. But it doesn't do you any good if you don't listen to it. Do not hear the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The next time we face a problem of any kind, you remember there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees on the other side. There is one more time in two chapters where they come to water. Do you think that they remembered the lesson? No, they begin to grumble. He brought us out here to die. Moses strikes a rock. The rock provides water for the whole nation. And Paul says that rock is Jesus. He's with us wherever we are to provide us with whatever we need. Elim is right around the corner. All we need to do is see past the test. Go back with me to 2 Kings 3. Good girl. I've always liked you. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. How would Jehoshaphat know that? He would know that because the word of the Lord is also with him. 
Brothers, you don't have to work very hard. If you put two jazz musicians in a room, before long, they're going to know each other are jazz musicians. It's going to happen. Somewhere in their speech, somewhere in their dealing with each other, their love, their passion is going to come up. You put two ex-college athletes in the same room and before long, you have to relive all those I was a hero stories. You put two people that love God in the same room, it ought not take long to find it out. If you have known someone 10 years and they just croaked, you say, but was he a believer? You know, I don't know. You know, I think you do know. I, th I think that's the problem. If you're working with someone right now and you've worked with them for five years and you're like, I wonder where they are with the Lord. Something's wrong, saints. At the mention of the man's name, the word of the Lord is with him. What would people say at the mention of your name? What defines you? Do people think of you as the Edomite? The flesh? You know that one. He's chasing everything that moves. Do they think of you as Joram? That dude can be swayed. He can be bent in whichever way will advance his cause. Or do they think of you as Jehoshaphat? He'll do whatever it takes. The word of the Lord's with him. How do they think of you? Well, nobody knows my heart. Well, how do you know what kind of trees growing in your backyard? So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elijah said, isn't it funny how people will come to you when they need something? Yeah. Eric, I need to talk to you for a minute. Really? You were not here last Sunday or the Sunday before or the Sunday before that. Oh, I'm sorry. You need something. Okay, I didn't realize. Elijah said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Is Elijah just being rude? Elijah looks right at him and says, What do we have to do with each other, king of Israel? You're the guy that has set up the false gods. You're the guy that has an alternate system of worship. You're the one that does whatever is expedient to stay in power. Why are you coming to me? Oh, you found the limits of your own arm. How about that? Really special thing about pastoring a church in a storefront and being a crazy charismatic person is when some very respected religious leader encounters somebody that's possessed. Oh, that's always special or some other problem that they cannot manipulate their way out of. And then you know what they do? They call somebody who dwells with God. Matthew, don't mention demons. It scares me. Mighty words of faith, right? But that pastor had a title. Lots of people that respected him. Fat paycheck, too. Don't mention demons. They scare me. Does that sound like somebody that the word of the Lord dwells with? Matthew and I were in a pastor's office here in Sugarland of a giant church. Pastor hated his sheep, but he did have pictures of himself with several presidents on the wall. He misquoted the scripture, and when I corrected him, he was furious. <laughs> See, I didn't have pictures of me with the president on the wall. I don't have that. I don't have that giant building. But I do have the word of the Lord and I would not trade it for what he has. Yeah. They go where they know there is power. Then and now. 
Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But you don't understand, Elijah. That was all just kind of a business deal. It's to make money. Is that wrong? No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Listen to this soulish realm. What is he saying? He said, no, I can't do that because God's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Well, why does he feel like God is going to kill him? Why in his heart is his conscience so guilty all of the time? Because he knows what he is doing is wrong. He just doesn't want to change. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He just doesn't want to change. So whenever he is around the godly, he is uncomfortable. They might get up and leave during your worship service. I had an encounter like this one time at a church in Baton Rouge. And the man leaned over and said, is there a back door out of this place? <laughs> you know what? There was. And I told him there wasn't. <laughs> I said, no, sir, if you're going to leave, you have to get up and walk right in front of that pastor and go to that door. He dropped his head and did it. Why do you think he wanted to go out the back door? We encounter this spirit all around us all of the time, but we also encounter it inside of us. Is there a part of us that really doesn't want to inquire of the Lord because we're scared that His will is dangerous for us. Are we so used to compromising and doing it our way that if we venture out in faith and literally do exactly what He told us to do, it's scary? See, this happens. It happens on every level of the walk. It happens when you start new projects. It happens when you pray for people. It happens all of the time. If I do it just like Jesus said, what if it doesn't work? I tell you what, your spirit better command your soul to get in line with the Word of God. And the two of them better gang up on the flesh or you have no hope. You are destined to fail. Do I have to tell you how Joram ends his life? No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve. If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Now bring me a harpist. Go on, get out. Go on, hurry up. Get out. Give me a harpist. I love these men of God in the Word. They did not tiptoe through the tulips, did they? A king is standing before him, someone of stature. But in his heart, he is a sniveling compromiser who has given up the anointing for provision. He's given up true spiritual authority to retain his own perception of power. He's a sellout. Elijah says, if you did not have this righteous guy with you, I wouldn't even look at you, dude. It's fine when we're talking about three kings, but what if we're talking about you? There are conversations that your spirit and your mind, will, and emotions are not allowed to have with each other. Your spirit simply needs to look at that part of you that is stressed between you and the flesh and say, Dude, if you weren't attached to me right now, I would not even look at you. Shut up. Shut up. Shut, shut, shut up. There are some thoughts we're not allowed to have. Did you know that Corinthians tells us to take every thought captive? And make it obedient to our knowledge of Jesus. Take it captive. 
The conversation goes on right before war all of the time. Right inside of me. My spirit says, you can do it. You can do it. My soul goes, I don't know. And the flesh goes, you can't. It's not going to work. You can't. You're destined to fail. And my spirit's got to look and say, hey, I said, shut up. You have to silence those voices in you. Remind yourself that Elim is on the other side of the desk. I wouldn't even look at you, dude, if I didn't have to. You're like a dead man tied to my back. That actually is what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. Everywhere I go, Joram's hanging on me. On now. Dirt, get down. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elijah. Why did Elijah need a harpist? To drown out every voice but God's. He needed music to be able to flow with God. Saints, why do you need worship? Because the other voices, the other kings inside of you that are supposed to be going to war sometimes just won't shut up. You remember when you were a teenager? Did you clean your room yet? Huh? I can't hear you. Did you take out the trash? Hold on, my radio's too loud. You just kind of drowned it out. My mother's not a teenager, but she got an iPod and she does that to us now. I said, Mom, it's not plugged in. Oh. <laughs> While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he said, This is what the Lord says. Make the valley full of ditches. This, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Their problem is that they're going to war. Their problem is they have no water. It's hard to fight when you feel like you're going to die first. God says, look, go dig a bunch of ditches. Now, is that what you want to do when you're thirsty? <laughs> Friends, I want you to understand the Word of the Lord is always hard to do. About the time that I got comfortable in a place called Lafayette, God said, move. About the time that I got comfortable with, Matthew, I can't believe it. We are finally paying the bills here. Did you know that last month, not once were we, you know, right at the edge of the account? We're paying the bills. Well, good, it's time to build something else. <laughs> and you know what? We're going to take the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that, one Jericho bite at a time, because God did not call me to be comfortable. He called me to do whatever He told me to do. And sometimes that's dig ditches even when you're thirsty. But Lord, when do I get to coast? You don't. You remember that old saying, I'll rest when I'm dead? Well, I'm eternally alive. There is no rest. You just do. And why? Why would you do that? Why would you do? What about me? What about my time? It doesn't belong to you anymore. He bought you. He purchased you. And when you had all of that time, all of that rest, all of that coast, all of that in reserve, what did you do? You rebelled against God. So you sold it all to Him and now you simply do what He tells you to do. And it is an abundant life. Yeah. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. What is so funny is that only God could know. Look, they're winding right here. They're a quarter mile from these springs that they can't see, saying there's no water. And they are whining. And if they would just trust me for a couple more seconds, they would see it. 
He's got this, this perspective being God that we don't have. The 30,000 foot view. He can see what is on the other side of your trial. Say, but why doesn't he just remove the trial? And he's going, why don't you just trust me? Honey, stop and ask for direction. We don't need direction. Stop and ask for We don't need direction. Trust me, we're going to get there. He says he's going to hand Moab over to him. Look at verse 19. You will overthrow. It's very important that you understand these next few verses. Uh, I'm going to close this service at 9 because of the kids. I've got seven minutes to do it. You have to get these next few verses. You will overthrow every fortified city. Say, every fortified city. So that means, you know, most of them, right? Every fortified city. Every major town. So it's going to get a few of them, right? You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. By the way, if you could ever wonder how a loving God would want to do something like this, you maybe should read Psalm 33. He laughs at the plans of the nations. He has a plan for the nations, and you can kick against it. You know, we love that America won World War II, right? I mean, that's a good thing. If you were German, would you feel the same way? Maybe. Depends on where your sense of morality was with what was going on. My point is, is that God has a plan for these nations. Said, but that's not fair to Moab. Sure it is. They didn't have to worship Chemosh, their national god of war that they burned their sons to in the fire. They could have worshipped Yahweh God. But they didn't know about him, really? They didn't see Israel marching around in the desert? And how is it that they came to go to war with him? We are quick to charge God with wrong. And we are so slow to charge people with wrong. I wonder why that is. You think that if we point our finger at someone else, we may have to look at our lives too? Huh. Every town, every tree, fill their fields with stones. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time for the offering, offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Amazing. God said it, and it was true. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. The Moabites across the way, I'm sorry, to the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. Why would they wake up, see blood, and assume that the three kings coming to attack them had fought with each other? Oh, that's right. The spirit is often at war with the soul. And when the spirit's not at war with the soul, the spirit's at war with the flesh. And when those two aren't at war, then the flesh and the soul are at war. See, to Moab, they looked out there and from a military perspective, honestly, they looked and they said, you know, the northern kingdom, Joram, he often fights with the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat. I bet their alliance didn't last. And Edom, why is Edom there? Oh, that's right. He's just the slave of the Spirit. He, his heart's not in it. So it's a perfectly reasonable assumption that may have fought and killed each other. Do you think sometimes our enemies look and go, if we can just hang on, they won't hold it together? I know Steve says that he's heard from God. But just give his soul and his flesh a little time to gang up on that vision. Do you think the enemy's trying to outlast you sometimes, thinking you'll slaughter each other? 
If you don't think that's true, let me ask you, how many people have you known in your life that said, God told me, and then it never happened? And what do we do? When it never happens, what do we do? We say, well, that must have been wrong. Maybe God didn't say. Or maybe the three parts of you just slaughtered the vision. I always found it interesting that everybody was called to go march in a rally. I mean, God has called us to stop this horrible practice in our nation. It's raining, though. <laughs> or last time some people got put in jail. What difference would that make if that's what God told you to do? <coughs> but the enemy knows if he sits long enough, the three kings will turn on each other. Now, that's not what happened here, but that was the assumption of the enemy. It was the assumption because it's what usually happens. Saints, we better get all three parts of us in line if we're going to do the work of God. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. Rose up and fought them until they fled. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. Is maybe the only one thinks that's a good thing? Yes. Or are y'all just scared to answer? No, it's a good okay. thing. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Sounds like they're doing exactly what God told them to do. Only Kir Harseth was left with its stones in place. But the men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. You get this? They have done 99% of what God has told them to do. There's just one city left. Does it surprise you to know that this city happens to be the capital of Moab where Chemosh is worshipped? One last stronghold. One last stronghold. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom but failed. Why would Moab want to go break through to the king that is attacking him? Because they're old friends. They've been allies at times. And remember that Edom, the flesh, he's only there because he's a vassal king. He's only there because he's being made to be there. So Moab figures, you know, if I can get the flesh off by myself, I can get him to turn on the others and maybe together the devil and the flesh can overcome the other two. That's never happened in the history of the church. Oh, there are this pastor's left with his secretary, that pastor embezzled money, blah, 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 blah. And if the pastors did, God only knows what the congregation was doing. This is the enemy has broken through your ranks and he's made an appeal directly to your flesh. The last person that is allowed to make decisions in your life is your flesh. The last person. He's third on the totem pole. It should filter its way from the spirit through the mind, will, and emotions and the orders are given to the flesh. Thank God it failed. But notice where the enemy's tactics are. They'll turn on each other. If I can just get to the flesh, they'll turn on each other. Who do you think is the next weakest link? <laughs> then he took his firstborn son who was to succeed him as king and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was so great they withdrew and returned to their own land. You know, I, I was puzzled. I thought, why would they do this? God said, you will withdraw every major city, every fortified town. Is it true? Well, this one fell. 
Is it true? Well, this one fell. Is it true? This one fell. Is it true? This one fell. But now here's one last one. Whose voice do you think it was if you just had to guess that said, you know, we pretty much beat them here. Look, Edom's tired. Jehoshaphat, don't wear yourself out, man. We, we got it. I mean, they're, they're a beaten people. Who do you think was it that compromised and went home? I guarantee you it was not Jehoshaphat. But if two-thirds of you is not committed to a project, don't think you're going to complete it. God wants your whole heart. He wants you to serve Him wholeheartedly. Mm. This means that your spirit must be communicating a message to your mind, will, and emotions. It must be communicating a message even to your flesh every day. You need to renew it. How do you do that? You get before the presence of the Lord. You let His Word dwell in you. When fear rises up, faith pushes it out. You need to renew because saints, your flesh is the first to turn. Mm. Your soul is next. And if those two can gang up on your spirit, you will lose vision and give up. God said through an anointed prophet, I will hand Moab to you. Every city, every fortified town, every major city, every tree, every field. And it did not happen. Why? Because when the fury got tough, the flesh and the soul bailed out and the spirit had no choice. If you think this is only an Old Testament story, what do you think it means when Jesus says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? Tell me, did they do what they were supposed to? No. The spirit was willing but the flesh gave out and they fell asleep. They didn't watch with him even one hour. Saints, we have to get them all in accord. And the only way to do that is to ingest the word, to stay in his presence, to feed your spirit till his influence in your life is greater than your flesh is greater than your mind, will, and emotions. These three kings went off to war. Why would they do it? So that you would learn how to fight. We have this idea that every battle, if God said do it, then we're going to win. We will not win if we do not do what He says. God's will is not always done. It's not. In the end, He will raise up somebody to do it. But His will is that you do what He told you to do. This is the best example I can think of of that. Let me ask you something. Your vision, whatever it is, do you want it more than the king that you're fighting who's killing his firstborn son on the wall? See, for Moab, no sacrifice was too great to hang on to what they had. For Israel, apparently some sacrifice was too great because they quit. We are not among those who shrink back and are destroyed. Saints, when we have these kind of trials when we have the difficulties that we've had in these last few weeks, when it looks like your world is crashing down on you, you need to feed your spirit. You need to get your soul into communion with your spirit. You need to force your flesh to do what those two guys know is right. If we don't give up at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. If we do not give up. This pastor is going to dig in. He's going to fight. And I believe many of you will. But these battles are sometimes long. And it calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. I'm asking you to take some time, search your heart, and get right, and get to the fight. Because none of you were made to sit on the sidelines.
pray, do what God says to do. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet.